when the Victor Valley Rescue Mission is here on Tuesdays, uh, oftentimes their volunteers will bring with them a few of these Our Daily Bread devotionals and put them on our card in the lobby. Uh, whenever you see these, you're welcome to grab one and take it home. That's why they're there. Uh, it's a wonderful little devotion that's been published for a number of years. Uh, it uh, comes out every month and will have a short little devotion with a scripture to read uh, each day of the month. And so this is the latest issue here uh, that I saw on the table earlier. Several years ago, there was a certain daily bread devotion that was telling the true story about a dog. And I know that many of you are dog lovers, as am I, and hopefully you're still a dog lover after you hear this story. True story. A man was in a little town, was an outdoorsman, did all sorts of odds and ends outside. Sometimes it was felling trees. He was a bit of a lumberjack, but he would do all sorts of projects, and he would always take his dog with him. And so one particular day, he had some work to do out in the woods, and he thought it was too dangerous to have the dog with him. So he found a clearing there beside the patch of trees, and he put his lunch bucket on top of a tree stump, and he told his dog to sit by that lunch bucket and guard it until he came back to eat his lunch. He wanted to make sure no one or no animal came and stole his lunch. So the dog heard what he said and understood and obediently sat down by his lunch pail. A man goes out in the woods. A couple hours passes, and smoke begins to rise on the horizon. And the flames that began to engulf the trees began making their way toward the clearing, and they eventually engulfed that clearing. Later, the day after, later that day after the, the flames had been contained, the man went back to that clearing, and he saw on that stump his melted lunch bucket, and right beside that melted lunch bucket, his dog lying dead, exactly where his master had told him to stay and watch his lunch. His faithful friend demonstrated the ultimate act of obedience, even though it cost him his life. And as the owner of that dog was telling the story to others later on who would eventually write that article, he said, I always had to be very careful what I told my dog to do because I knew he would do it. I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew he would do it. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but ask, does Jesus ever say that about you or me? Is Jesus ever having a conversation with his angels up there in heaven, and he looks down at one of us men and, and says, you know what, I always have to be careful what I tell him to do because I know he will do it. Ladies, does he ever have a conversation with his angels and say about you, I always have to be very careful what I tell her to do because I know she will do it. I wonder if Jesus ever says that about us. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. You know, when Jesus gives us marching orders, he doesn't call us to fail, does he? But maybe you've never thought about this before. He doesn't necessarily call us to succeed either. When Jesus gives us marching orders, our primary objective is not to succeed. Our primary objective is not to fail. Our primary objective given to us by Jesus Christ is to simply obey and be faithful. He calls us to be faithful and leave the results up to him. And I think that lesson is communicated so powerfully in this passage we're going to look at this morning. 
in Luke chapter 10. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, please grab one of those blue ones from the rack. Uh, you'll find that on page Luke t- on uh, page uh, 1027 if you're using one of those blue Bibles. The rest of you turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 1. And as we look at this important message today that I'm calling Faithful Messengers, part 1. We can't get through the whole passage today, so we'll get through a bit of it today and pick it up next week. That's such an important passage, I think, will be a blessing to you today. God is good, and all the time. See, I'm looking, ladies, at that response time, and it was pretty shoddy. You know, it was like three seconds. So I think Christine may be incorrect on this. I bet the guys, you know, they'd have those up a little faster. Fellas, you think so? (laughs) That's right, ladies are better at multitasking, Fran. I've got to hand that to her. You know, I was just thinking earlier, Fran, if, if I ever take up stand-up comedy, please don't come in the audience because your heckling is masterful. <laughs> All right, we're going to be in Luke 10. Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, we love you, and we thank you for giving us your word. Father, there's so many that can't do this simple, beautiful thing that we're about to do right now. Open your word together and study it without fear of the authorities coming in. Lord, I think of those poor Christians in China right now where the government, not even secretly now, out in the open is burning down Christian churches and dispersing congregations that claim the name of Christ. Or I think of those Christians around the world in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran, North Korea, that have to meet underground because it's illegal to do what we're doing right now. Lord, thank you for this privilege. We don't want to squander it today. Speak to us and help us to take full advantage of this opportunity we have to have the creator of the universe speak his word into our lives. Thank you, Lord, for this honor. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I am sending you out like... Lambs among wolves, do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. And be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. 
but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. May God bless us as we study his word today. You may remember back in verse 51 of chapter 9, there was that very important turning point in Jesus' ministry. I described it as the Great Divide, or the Continental Divide is the term I use. The Continental Divide where there in verse 51 of chapter 9, it says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We talked about a bit that that was a turning point in Jesus' ministry. From that point forward, everything that Jesus did had the cross and the tomb in mind. Every time Jesus taught, every time he performed a miracle, every time he chose to visit a specific town, he had the bloody cross and the empty tomb in mind. So when Jesus chose to send out 72 gospel messengers here in chapter 10, it's a very strategic move on the part of Jesus. It's a very strategic move that fits perfectly into his mission as he is headed to Jerusalem with the bloody cross and that empty tomb in mind. And we saw in chapter 9, the passage we studied over the last month, we saw in early chapter 9, this was probably a few months before this event here in chapter 10, we saw that early in chapter 9 that Jesus did a similar thing during his ministry. He sent out his 12 apostles two by two, into a number of different towns to do his work. And so what we've done today in your message notes, you may want to jot a few of these down. What I did over this last week, but many Bible studiers have done over the years, is flipped back and forth between chapters 9 and 10 to note the things that are similar between these two missions and also note the things that are a bit different. First of all, let's start with the similarities between Jesus sending out the 12 apostles in chapter 9, and then sending out these 72 here in chapter 10. For starters, Jesus sent out both groups in pairs of two. It's very interesting. The top of chapter 9, before Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, he gives them all authority to drive out every kind of demon. He gives them power to heal every kind of sickness and illness. He gives them that charge to go and preach the kingdom of God. And with that authority given, with that message, they would be able to successfully convince people that the kingdom of God was near, and those people, many of them at least, would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So he gave them all power and authority, but even though they could heal any illness, even though they could drive out any demon, even though they could preach powerfully the word of God, he still sent them out in twos. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus models in both missions this two-by-two model. Don't go do ministry by yourself. Take a brother or sister with you. And you two do ministry together. Another similarity, Jesus gave both groups power to heal the sick. He gave it to the 12 before he sent them out. He gave it to the 72 before he sent them out. Next, Jesus sent out both groups without any extra money or food or clothes. We talked about this last month as we dove into that early part of chapter 9. Jesus didn't send them with any money. He didn't send them with a suitcase with a change of clothes. He didn't send them with any food. He asked them to be completely reliable on the host homes that would take them in along the way. One of my favorite shows, many of you know, as a kid and teenager, was the show MacGyver. 
And I remember on the pilot of that series, MacGyver is, is going into this top secret uh, underground bunker of sorts, and there's a reactor that has begun to leak. And so they bring him in because he's the best on, in the world to help to stop this leak and to, to save America from this explosion that's bound to happen in just a matter of hours. And he takes himself a little knapsack, grabs a pack of cigarettes and some chewing gum, and he's on his way to go stop the leak. And one of the guys asks him, where's all your equipment? And he says, don't worry, I'll find it along the way. And that's exactly what happens. And I, Man, I like MacGyver. What a guy. He improvises. He, he has it along the way. That's not much different from what Jesus was doing with his disciples here, both with the 12 and with the 72. Don't worry about packing all the supplies. Your Father in heaven will supply what you need along the way. Jesus instructed both groups to stay in host homes in each town where they ministered. Another similarity, Jesus instructed both groups to shake the dust off their feet whenever a town rejected them. Finally, Jesus told both groups to preach the kingdom of God. So there were a lot of similarities between sending out the 12 and sending out the 72. Now, here are a few important differences. For starters, their mission fields were different. It seems clear that when Jesus had sent out a few months earlier the 12 two by two, Jesus had been focused, focusing his ministry on northern Israel, that region we call Galilee. And so he sent out his disciples, his 12 apostles, in Galilee, two by two. Here it seems clear, as Jesus is making a beeline for Jerusalem, he's headed south. And so he seems to be sending out the 72 two by two in the region of Judah, the region that Jerusalem was in. And so the geographic area seems to be a bit different between these two groups. A second difference is that the 12 apostles were sent into towns to expand the reach of Jesus' ministry. Jesus couldn't personally be in all those towns in Galilee, so he multiplies his effectiveness and, and expands his reach by sending out these six groups of two into towns that he might not be able to have time to visit. But the mission is different here in chapter 10. Notice he sends out these 72, 36 groups of two, to towns where Jesus was about to go. So in this case, he sends them ahead of him only to towns where he was planning on visiting on the way to Jerusalem. And so they are preparing the way for Jesus to personally come into those towns. And of course, the, the, the other difference that stands out is the sheer number of groups that Jesus sends. Instead of six groups of two, like in chapter 9, there are 36 groups of two here in chapter 10. Now let's talk a moment about this number 72. There's 72 messengers. Now, uh, on any given Sunday morning, a few of us have some different translations other than the NIV 84 edition that I normally read out of on a Sunday morning. And so as you're looking at your translation there of the early verses of chapter 10, if you have the New American Standard or if you have the New King James, you may have done a double take when I read the passage because it uses a different number. It says that Jesus sent out 70 not 72. And so you look at the various English translations, about half of them say he sent out 70, about half say he sent out 72. Why is there a difference? Aha, God's word is in error, right? Some people get a little too excited about that. So how many did Jesus send out, 70 or 72? Well, I've thought about this a lot, looked at those different translations. My best guess is he sent out 72. Remember, as you look at the different accounts of the resurrection, Matthew says there was an angel in the tomb after Jesus conquered death on Easter morning. 
Luke mentions that there were two angels. Which one is correct? Both. Wherever there is two, there are there is still one, right? And so similarly here, if there's 72, there's also 70. Why the difference? Well, the difference, I believe, comes down to the importance of numbers in the Jewish culture and in Scripture. I believe literally there were 72, but Luke possibly may have rounded that number down to 70 to communicate the importance of that number in the New Testament and in Scripture. Let me tell you what I mean. The number 12, let's look at that as an example. The number 12 is a very significant number in the Old Testament. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, 12 was also the most common number used in the construction of Solomon's temple and the articles that went into that temple. 12 is also an important number in the heavenly Jerusalem that Jesus will build one day because it says the heavenly Jerusalem is going to have 12 gates with 12 huge pearls as the actual gates in those openings of the wall of the city. And so this number 12 is very important in Scripture. So the number 12, interestingly, symbolizes perfection in government. That's what it means in Scripture. It symbolizes perfection in government. So that seems to be why Jesus chose 12 apostles. The 12 apostles would serve as the perfect leadership team, the perfect government, if you will, that would lead the Christian church after Jesus would ascend into heaven. And so there was a, a method to the madness. There was a reason Jesus chose 12. Now we look at the number 70. 70 is also a very important number in Scripture. Uh, for example, in Numbers chapter 11, Moses appointed 70 elders to share his duties as he was wandering through the wilderness uh, with the one million plus Jews that had been exodus from uh, Egypt. We also find the number 70, the number of elders in Exodus chapter 24 that Moses invites to Mount Sinai to have a special meal with God. Also, the Babylonian exile lasted how many years? Seventy years. So it's an important number in Scripture. So in the Bible, the number 70 symbolizes perfect spiritual order carried out with all spiritual power. Okay? So that's the, the meaning of that number 70 to the Jewish people and the meaning in Scripture. So my best guess is that Jesus chose 72 to go out and spread the word, but Luke quite possibly rounded that number down to 70 to communicate the power behind the number that Jesus had chosen. Jesus had sent out to help bring about perfect spiritual order and carry out with all power the mission that he had in mind to carry out. And so that's an interesting little side note there as we dive into the, the heart of this passage. Now, there's no way that we can properly cover these 16 verses, let alone the four verses after this, to get us up to verse 20. No way we can do that justice today. So I want to hit some highlights for us today. I want to hit some highlights. I'm going to share with you in a moment five insights that we can glean from these first 16 verses that speak to us who have also been given marching orders by Jesus Christ. Jesus gave the 12 marching orders in chapter 9. He gave the 72 marching orders in chapter 10. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 28, you fast forward from this incident in chapter 10, fast forward maybe about six months, uh, Jesus had already conquered death. He had already been with his disciples off and on for a 40-day period. And after 40 days beyond Easter Sunday, Jesus was about to ascend into heaven. And so there he was in the hills uh, about to ascend into heaven. He had his disciples gathered around them. And Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, records for us the marching orders that Jesus gave his disciples before he went himself up to heaven. 
And in Matthew 28, oftentimes in the church, we call this the Great Commission. Jesus says this in 28 verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. There before Jesus ascended into heaven, he spoke to his apostles. There were 11 at the time because Judas Iscariot had already committed suicide. So he speaks to his 11 apostles and quite likely other Christians who are gathered there with him. And he gives them these final marching orders. Here is your job, Christians. You are to go into all the world. You are to go into all the world and you are to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And once you lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ, part of that is going to be baptizing them. And once you have a new baptized believer, you are to disciple them. In other words, you are to teach them everything I have commanded you over these last three to three and a half years that you have been with me night and day. And so you are to lead people to Christ, bring them to a point of salvation, and you are to help them grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ by teaching them my commands. And so Jesus gave that command to them, and he has given it to every generation of Christians in the past 2,000 years since then. That's the mission he gave us as we come up with our mission statement, the banners on our wall. We glean that from Matthew 28, 19, and 20, those marching orders that Jesus Christ has given us. But he doesn't give us the specifics there in Matthew 28. He simply says, go, baptize, and teach. And that's about it. And so we kind of scratch our heads. We're left with a lot of questions. Well, Jesus, that's a good start. I generally know what you want me to do now, but... What results should we expect when we go? How will we know if we're saying the right thing when we share the good news of Christ? Who is going to cover our travel expenses? Because sometimes ministry doesn't come cheap. What if we try to share the good news with people, but they don't want to hear it? Now, when it comes to carrying out Jesus' marching orders, we have a hundred questions. But Jesus here in Luke chapter 10, as he sends out the 72 answers some of the most important questions that you and I will ever ask about how to carry out our mission and what to expect. So I want to share with you these five insights today, gleaned from these verses, five insights that are so important to keep in mind as we carry out these marching orders that Jesus gives us to reach the lost and to lead them in a growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Insight number one, this is the game of our lives But our team is too small, so we need to pray for our coach to put more players on the field. Amen? Maybe you might say, you know, Dane, that seems like an analogy that's better suited for Father's Day. But moms, I hope you can appreciate that analogy as well. Look again at verse 2. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is the game of our lives, but our team is too small. Jesus says we need to pray for our coach to put more players on the field. Maybe Jesus doesn't mind that sports analogy much because it's not much different from his farming analogy that was very well known to those in a farming community when he first gave it. Jesus wants us to understand that there is a lot of work to do. And there are not enough people right now, not enough workers to carry it out. There's a big game to be played, and there are not enough players on the field. The scope of the marching orders Jesus gave us is absolutely mind-boggling. 
Jesus didn't say just go into your neighborhood and make disciples of everyone on your street. He didn't just say go into Victorville or go into Atlanta and, and make disciples of all those in those communities. Jesus said go and make disciples of all nations. That's 7.7 billion people. That's a lot of folks. 7.7 billion people on the earth right now and ever-growing. It's a lot of people. The bottom line is we need some help. We need more messengers for Jesus. We need more Christians to invite people to church. We need more Christians to disciple new believers. We need more missionaries. We need more prayer warriors. We need more tithers and generous givers to fund the whole operation. Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, after reflecting on this verse, Chuck Swindoll writes something that I found to be pretty convicting. Swindoll wrote, It is laborers, not spectators, who pray for more laborers. Too many Christians are praying for somebody else to do a job they are unwilling to do themselves. Ouch. And all God's people said, Ouch. Ouch. Notice that Jesus, in verse 3, right after he instructs the 72 messengers to pray for God to raise up more workers, look at verse 3. Notice what he says right after that. I want you to pray because there are not enough workers. I want you to pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise raise up workers. And then immediately he says, go, I am sending you. I am sending you. I am sending you. In case you missed it, he says, I am sending you. Wow. Insight number two. The stakes are too high for any of us to sit in the bleachers. Jesus is telling you to get onto the field. He's telling you to get onto the field. You think about it. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus gave that great commission in Matthew 28 before he ascended into heaven. It's been 2,000 years. And you say 7.7 billion people, that's a lot of people. But 2,000 years, that's a long time. Certainly that's a long enough time to reach every single people group on earth, don't you think? The answer is absolutely. Sometimes we give the Israelites a hard time because they spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness, 40 years, when they should have been able to get there in just a few short months. Why did it take them so long? Because they were kind of stubborn and... They didn't exactly do what God told them to do, right? So he allowed them to take their own sweet time to get to the promised land. They could have had that land flowing with milk and honey a lot sooner, but they weren't doing what God told them to do along the way. Jesus could have come back long ago, but the church over the last 2,000 years hasn't been doing what it was supposed to do all along. It's been a long time, 2,000 years. Part of the reason that the world is not fully been reached yet. Part of the reason that every single people group on earth has not been penetrated with the gospel is because you and I haven't completed reaching our part of the world. We haven't finished reaching our part of the world. The world isn't fully reached in part because we haven't fully reached Victorville. You and I haven't fully reached Atlanto or Apple Valley or Hesperia. Shoot, you haven't even fully reached your own neighborhood yet. I haven't even fully reached my own neighborhood yet. No wonder the world has not been reached yet. 
Because at the local level, Christians, to a very large extent, haven't been reaching their own neighborhoods. Jesus calls us to pray for more gospel messengers. But then he turns to you, and he turns to me, and he says, Go, I am sending you. I am sending you. He turns to me and he says, Dane, go. I'm sending you. Now, many Christians, many of us in this room probably have responded at some time, but God, I'm not an evangelist. What do you mean you want me to go and lead people to Christ? I'm not an evangelist. Well, Jesus doesn't seem to care very much what you think you are or aren't. He tells you to go anyway. But Jesus, you don't understand. I'm scared to death to talk to strangers about you. Jesus responds, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that that the neighbors on your street are perfect strangers to you? I didn't tell you every time you come home from the store and every time you come home from work and every time you come home from school to make a beeline to your front door and ignore your neighbors around you. Jesus understands that if we were in the habit of establishing casual relationships with those in our circle of influence, when the time comes to talk to them about Jesus, it's a whole lot easier if you've already built the foundation of a relationship with those neighbors, with those coworkers, with your classmates at school, with those in that sphere of influence God has given you. The biggest church in town in Victorville is High Desert Church. A lot of people have wondered over the years, how did that church get so big? I know Tom Mercer, the pastor, personally. And he toots the same horn year after year after year. You know all they do evangelistically is just talk about oikos. Oikos is that Greek term for the 8 to 15 people in your immediate sphere of influence that God has strategically placed them in your lives for you to reach with the gospel. We all have at least 8 to 15 and I tell you, Pastor Mercer, he just toots this horn over and over and over and over. So they started putting some billboards on the I-15 a few years ago, but they don't get a whole lot out of that. It's pretty much this oikos evangelism. Whoever your circle of influence is, those are the ones Jesus has strategically placed in your life to share the gospel with. It's a very simple, very biblical model. And I tend to believe that we need to have a variety of approaches with evangelism. That quite possibly is the most important of all those Methods that we use. Simply reach those who are already around us. Build relationships and look for opportunities given to us by God to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus says the stakes are too high for any of us to sit in the bleachers. He's telling you and he's telling me to get onto the field. We have no shortage of excuses for not doing the job that Jesus gave us to do. But the excuses are just that. They're just excuses. The command still remains, go. And make disciples of all nations. And it begins on our own home turf. Insight number three. The competition is as fierce as wolves. We find that in verse three. Jesus says, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. If he didn't already scare us half to death in verse two by saying, go, I'm sending you. That's pretty scary for many of us. That's scary for us. It's out of our comfort zone. We come from this mentality. I never talk to people about politics or religion. Scary for many of us to share our faith. But he ups the ante a bit. He says, by the way, as you go and do what I just told you to do in verse 2, you're going to be like a lamb among a wolf. Isn't that good news? You you got these wolves out there with these sharp teeth and the drool's coming down their chin. And, man, they're just waiting to sink their sharp teeth into your flesh. 
Well, what's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is making it clear that as we go and do what he has called us to do, we will experience human and demonic attack as we carry out his marching orders. When we go into all the world and share the life-saving message of Jesus Christ, some people get really, really nasty, don't they? Some of you have experienced this. Some people get nasty. Don't say that Jesus didn't warn you. He warned you. Some people won't like it very much. Many of us who carry out these marching orders will be criticized and cussed out and told to take a hike. Some of us might even be physically assaulted. Every single year, millions of Christians around the world suffer far worse than anything you and I will have to suffer for Jesus. I was rejoicing this last week with many Christians around the world. Some of you remember that about four or five years ago, we began letting you know about a pastor who had been incarcerated in Iran. His name was Pastor Saeed. And Pastor Saeed, three years ago, was released. And we were celebrating because we'd been praying for several years that he'd be released because he was held for a bogus reason in an Iranian prison. And he almost died in one of those prisons because they put him in the worst one. And also around that time, I began telling you about a lesser-known woman called Asiya Bibi. Sometimes I pronounced her name Asia Bibi because it's spelled just A-S-I-A. But Asiya Bibi, praise God, just this last week, was able to finally leave the country of Pakistan. Praise God. Here's, here's what happened 10 years ago, 2009. She's a mother of five, if I remember correctly. Asiya Bibi got into a, some sort of argument with her co-worker. She was a berry picker out in the fields, and she offered a cup of cold water to one of her Muslim co-workers, and she was accused by those co-workers of blaspheming Muhammad. And so they arrested her, and they put her almost immediately after a court case on death row, scheduled to be hanged because she somehow maligned the name of Muhammad and was an infidel for handing some cold water to a purified Muslim. Well, she was defended by several high-level leaders in the country of Pakistan. And over the last several years, two of those high-level leaders were assassinated, specifically because they were defending her. But Christians continued to pray around the world, and finally last fall, her death sentence and her sentence in general was overturned, and she was released from prison late last year. But she was put under armed guard and was not allowed to leave Pakistan And she received a number of death threats. And because of those death threats, she sent her family out of the country, even though she herself couldn't leave. And then finally, this last week, she was allowed to leave. And so now she's in an undisclosed location in Canada, finally having that behind her. Praise God. Asiya is one of literally millions around the world. I mentioned earlier the Chinese churches that are being burned to the ground out in the open. The Chinese government has published an edict, making no bones about it, that the Christian church in China is a direct threat to their government. And so there is a heightened persecution against our number two trade partner in the world, China. What a travesty that many of our Christian brothers and sisters deal with this. Certainly, if they go through all of that persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ, we can undergo the little bit that comes our way. Vance Horner famously said, Most church members do not give Satan enough trouble to arouse his opposition. I hope that's a divine ouch for you as well. Most Christians do not give Satan enough trouble to arouse his opposition. 
There are a few things in this life, I tell you, that really fire me up. When people are saving babies at Planned Parenthood and convincing the moms to not have an abortion, that fires me up. I get excited about that. I'm tired of one million babies being aborted every year in this country. I think it's a travesty. It's an absolute travesty. It fires me up when babies' lives are being saved. It fires me up when I see people give their life to Christ, especially those that come from a a, a lifestyle of drugs or alcohol or addiction or abuse of some kind. To see people give their lives to Christ and be transformed by the power of the gospel, man, that fires me up. It fires me up when I see marriages healed. We've had God doing some of that in recent weeks here at the church, restoring and healing marriages. What a blessing it is when we see that happen. And something else that gets me fired up is when Satan gets his butt kicked. That fires me up. When Satan gets a swift kick to the posterior right right where he deserves it. If you undergo some attack as you get out there and share Jesus with your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and your classmates, good for you. Good for you. I'll stand up and cheer for you as you take that flack and abuse from those that don't want to hear it. That means if you're undergoing some attack, it means you're getting the enemy of our souls a little bit riled up. And I like it when he's a little bit riled up. You're kicking him in the sorry butt right where he needs to be kicked. You're getting him all bent out of shape. And that's good because he needs to be all bent out of shape. He's been all straightened up for far too long because Christians, we haven't been doing our job. We've got to keep applying the pressure. We've got to be doing what Jesus called us to do. If you want to tick him off more than anything, you just lead people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Nothing gets him more upset than that, especially if he thought that person was his. And you snatch that person out of his hand by the power of the gospel. Man, I love it. Insight number four. The travel amenities as you carry out the marching orders Jesus gave you, the travel, travel amenities aren't great. You've been to one of those churches that preached a health and wealth gospel. You give your life to Christ, you have enough faith, and you'll have a high-paying job. You'll be able to buy anything you want. You'll have the Rolex watches. You'll be driving around in the Mercedes-Benz or the BMW. You give your life to Christ, and you have enough faith, and you can just say, claim it. I claim it, and it's yours. If you were ever taught that, I'm sorry. That's bogus teaching. Jesus never promises all these worldly possessions. He tells this group here, your travel amenities aren't going to be too great. You're not taking any food. You're not taking any extra clothes. You're not taking a suitcase. Sorry, travel amenities aren't great. You know, four weeks from today, I'm getting excited about this. Can't believe it's just four weeks out. Our children's director, Christy, and I will be taking 14 of our teenagers to Colorado Springs for their mission trip we've been talking about a lot recently. Just four weeks from today. And so as we're preparing for this trip, here's the reality. We're going to have a a host church in the Colorado Springs area take us in, and we'll be sleeping on the floor on air mattresses all week. We'll be going and serving and getting really dirty. As best I understand it, we're going to be serving uh, some of the homeless in Colorado Springs by helping to build some of the transitional housing to get them off the streets into a safer place. So we're going to be getting dirty that week. And when we come back to the church at the end of a hard day, to take a shower. We're going to be taking showers in a trailer out in the parking lot. They don't have indoor showers, so we're in a shower trailer. This last week, I got an email from the ministry we're going to be partnering with, and they gave me on that email the menu for the week. And I look carefully at the meals that they're going to serve us while they're there, and you know what I found? They're not serving us in and out Burger a single time. I looked on that list, and there's no Chick-fil-A. 
Ladies, some of your families will take you out to a nice lunch today. There's no Outback Steakhouse on that mission trip. You know what shocked me? There's not even a Dunkin' Donuts in the lineup. And you know what? You know what? Who cares? Who cares? Whatever you feed us, we'll eat. Wherever you tell us to sleep, we'll sleep. Wherever you tell us to shower, we'll shower. As long as it's modest, you know, that's no, you might draw the line there. Whatever you tell us to do, we're going to do it. That's okay. Because Jesus, I think, is communicating to us in this passage that the mission is always much more important than the menu. The mission is always much more important than the menu. Personally, I do not understand how picky eaters can ever carry out the marching orders of Jesus Christ. I don't know how picky eaters can ever do it. Now, Christy and I have both been on mission trips to Samoa, and those folks, they're like five times my size. These ladies have feet the size of my head. You know, those are some large people. And man, can they put it away. And they put all this stuff in front of us, and we don't even know what half of it is. We know, thank you very much. We just eat it. It's fine. You've got to have a missionary palate when you're doing Jesus' work. Because sometimes people will feed you something that's not your favorite, and you don't insult them because the menu is not more important than the mission. If you invite me over to your house and I'm doing ministry with you and your family, I do not like hard-boiled eggs. But if you serve me a hard-boiled egg, guess what I'm going to eat with a smile on my face? I'm going to eat a hard-boiled egg. I do not like sauerkraut and I do not like fruitcake. If I come over to your house and you serve me sauerkraut with fruitcake on the side, I'm going to look at that and say to myself, that's the weirdest combination I've ever seen in my life. But guess what? I'll be eating at your house that day. Because the menu is never more important than the mission. As we saw last week, what is good is oftentimes the enemy of what is best. We all love good, tasty food. We all love a cozy bed. We all love fresh, clean clothes. But whenever we're given the choice between good amenities and good ministry, we shouldn't think twice about choosing good ministry every single time. I have so much respect over there for Manuel Villalobos. Many of you see Manuel as the first person at this church each Sunday. Because each Sunday he comes early and he dons that orange vest and he goes out in that parking lot and he's praying for you as you pull into the parking lot. He's offering to help if you need to help bring something in the building from your car. Seniors, he's available to help if they need help in some way. He's giving you a friendly greeting. I have so much respect for Manuel because I've seen him week in and week out, year in and year out. It doesn't matter if it's 30 degrees outside. It doesn't matter if it's 100 degrees outside. It doesn't matter if his back is killing him or if he feels great. He's out there every week serving the Lord because he has decided long ago the mission is more important than the menu. His comfort is never going to be more important than the ministry God has called him to. And Manuel is just one of many examples in this church of ones that have counted the cost and said, you know what, my own personal comfort, I don't care about my personal comfort right now because I'm about Jesus' business and I'm doing his work right now and all praise be to God, I'll eat when I'm good and ready and ministry's done with. Praise God for those. I've even gone out and offered him a donut. He turns it down because he's mission-focused. So I eat his donut. Oftentimes when we do Christ's work, especially the most important work of getting out of our comfort zone and sharing the gospel, the food won't be our favorite. The sleeping arrangements won't be our very comfortable. It'll probably be too hot or too cold, but who cares as long as we are faithfully carrying out our marching orders. Insight number five, 
the time is short. The time is short. At the end of verse 4, Jesus told the 72 to greet anyone on the, to not greet anyone on the road. And we read that, and it seems like an odd thing for Jesus to say, but it's not really that odd. You see, the days were few leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, and he wanted as many people to hear the good news as possible before D-Day. For you and me, our days are also numbered. If you think about it, your days living in your current neighborhood are numbered. If you think about it, your days at your workplace where you're working right now are numbered. Teenagers, your days at the school you're currently going to are numbered. And the sad fact is, your days at this church are numbered. Because our lives, our days are numbered. Amen? So everywhere you are today, whether it's school or your neighborhood or work or even in this church, your days are numbered. And Jesus says the time is short. You've got to get about your father's business. Your Lord and Savior has asked you to go and do his work and prepare people for his coming. So get out there and do it. Many moms in this room today have been doing that for years. Thank you, moms, for prioritizing the most important thing you could ever prioritize, which is leading your families to Jesus Christ and setting a godly example for them every day. Jesus says, get out there and do it. You know, if a faithful dog could sacrifice his life, obeying his master's orders to watch his lunch pail, then certainly you and I should be able to sacrifice a few comforts while obeying our master's orders to seek and save the lost. Father, thank you for giving us the greatest mission of all time. And this is one of those days where, just like many times in the past, I've marveled at the fact that you call us to do the most important thing when you could do a much better job if you came down and did it yourself. Your angels could do a much better job than me if you sent them down to do this work of sharing the gospel, leading people to Christ and discipling them, helping them to grow in their faith. Lord, anyone in heaven that you're glancing at right now, anyone could do a better job than me. But you chose me. You chose each of us. Because you love us, And you want to give us something very, very important to do for you to bring you honor and glory. Lord Jesus, may we not squander these moments you give us to seek and save the lost. Lord, we tend to get a little caught up in ourselves. We get self-conscious. We get worried about what people will say about us. None of us like rejection. But I pray, O God, that we would share the good news anyway. Having the attitude, Lord, I'm going to be faithful. Regardless of whether I'm successful, regardless of if I fail or succeed, you've just called me to be faithful. I'll leave the results up to you. Help us to trust you with those results. Keep our eyes and our hearts focused on you. I pray that you'd raise up within me the heart of an evangelist. And that you'd raise up within us evangelists in each of us who are here today, O oh God. You don't promise us tomorrow. Lord, I just have this feeling that there's at least one or two people in this room today who have felt like they need to be a little more bold in sharing Christ with a family member. I pray that this morning would be the time 
Will you speak into their minds and hearts and nudge them that final nudge that they need and say, go ahead and do it today. You've been dragging your feet a bit. Do it today. Because you may not have a chance tomorrow. Lord, help us to be your workers. Help us to be faithful until you call us home. And when you do, we will celebrate with you what you did through us for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.